So as we pull up that first picture on the screen, I just want you to notice uh, this is the past year. This has been, this photo is how I've experienced church. And so if you can't tell, uh, basically once we closed down a year ago, March, um, I was spent my time standing here. So this is what the view from, from where I stand looks like, uh, staring out at a completely empty sanctuary, empty room, and talking to an iPhone. And sometimes I didn't know if there was anyone on the other line. I could be talking into outer space and uh, with nobody listening. And so that's a lot of my experience of church over the past year. And my question this morning is, how do you experience church? And so I want you to mentally fill in the blank this morning. Our church is, and you fill in the blank. And I want to say that however you fill in that blank reveals how you experience church. So let's say that you came for the first time and you met wonderful people, developed lifelong friendships. You would fill in the blank. Our church is friendly. Or you show up, no one says hi to you, you feel ignored and that people are cold and uncaring, then you would say our church is unfriendly. If you were part of this church and two people in your growth group were experiencing healing and help from the Lord, then you would say our church is celebrating. Alternatively, if two people in your growth group were experiencing ruin in their finances or in their family or in their health, our church is suffering. And so we have a tendency to view church in a very limited way based on our own experiences. And what we need is for our hearts and our minds to be open to see across the whole spectrum of the church, the whole church family, to get a big picture so that we can really live out the kind of vibrant faith, the vibrant church community that we're meant to. Meant to. And so the question we're answering this morning is, what does a vibrant church really look like? How should we experience it? If you have a Bible, you want to turn in it to James chapter 5. We're in this series called Vibrant, where we're learning about a faith that works even when life doesn't. And James teaches us as we're tested by temptations and trials of life that a vibrant faith perseveres by living out God's wisdom in our perspectives and our practices. In other words, does my life match up with my beliefs? And in this season finale this morning, what we're looking at is where does James want his church and ours to land in this final passage? And so you might remember just reviewing quickly chapters 4 and 5, we talked about dealing with conflict and plans and uh, wealth and suffering in light of God, in light of eternity. And so that the church would walk together with Jesus towards increasing faith and freedom and fulfillment forever in Christ. And so what do you think this last and crucial thing that Pastor James, the author of this book, wants to address to the church, to encourage the church towards a vibrant faith together as God's family? James chapter 5, we're picking up in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. 
Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Let's stop right there for a moment. And so what we see first is that James lists a bunch of issues. And he starts by asking if anyone amongst you in the church are experiencing these things. Because our life and our faith, are they're always personal, but they're never private. And so what he's talking about here when he says amongst you, he's talking about what you experience as part of a community of Christ. That instead of facing these kinds of things alone, what does God call us to do when we experience difficulties or victories? Well, he says pray together, pray for one another. And so the big idea of this passage this morning is that a vibrant church shares in each other's lives by praying for each other on all occasions. You want to know what a healthy spiritual life of a church looks like? Then you need to answer these questions. How much do I genuinely share my realities and requests with others? And how often do I pray together about them? Those are the marks of a vibrant church and a vibrant spiritual life. So, the question is then, what should we be sharing? What should we be praying with one another? Verse 13, if anyone amongst you is suffering, if you're in a season of darkness and difficulty and despair, when that happens, a lot of times we can respond in a lot of sinful ways. <coughs> Excuse me. We can curse God. We can doubt God. We can walk away from God. We can take matters into our own hands or take it out on a friend like we saw in the last passage. James says, if anyone is suffering, let him pray. And I want you to notice that a lot of times it'd be easy when we are suffering to blame other people like, why aren't you inviting me? Why aren't you calling me? Why aren't you praying for me? But what James does is he puts the ball in our court, even when we are suffering, that we are the ones to seek out God and seek out other people to be in prayer together. And so what does that look like? What does it mean to pray for someone, to ask for prayer when you're suffering? Well, the best picture I can think of is in the book of Psalms, which is basically a book of worship and prayer. And what we see is when people are lamenting, when they're in the midst of troubles, they do two things, right? Of course, they ask God to relieve their severe circumstances, which is what all of us do when we pray, when we're suffering. But we also discover in the Psalms that they spend a lot of time mourning, lamenting, and that we need to do that as well, where we bring before God, here is my suffering, and here is my prayer, and as I offer them together to God, I'm releasing my pain to the Lord. Does that make sense? And so we often look to God for a, a fix without bringing Him our heart. And so prayer is honest about mourning, about lamenting before God. It's that crying out, Heavenly Father, I am in despair and in darkness. I'm in depression. I feel helpless and hopeless, but you are my only help and hope. And as we do, we start to release our pain to Jesus, trusting him, depending on him, knowing that his shoulders are far bigger and stronger than mine. What about when life is going well? James says, if anyone cheerful, then what? Let him sing praise. And we're still talking about prayer here, right? This is just a way of praying except in music with song. And so the way I want you to think about it is we're celebrating and communicating to God how great he is and how thankful we are. 
Because a lot of times we're quick to bring our hurts to God, but we often neglect to bring our joys to him as well. And so we need to remember to turn to him in our difficulties, but also in our victories. And the way I want you to think about it is like this. Uh, my younger daughter, she is very quiet, kind of emo, and on the surface. And so when you see her, you know, you may not think that she is that happy of a person. But when she is cheerful and when she thinks that no one else is lo- looking, what she loves to do is sing at the top of her lungs like there's no one else in the room. And some of you know because I secretly send videos of it to you. And what we've been doing with her as a family is to teach her more about music worship. Because what happens is as she learns to sing along with, uh, with worship music, she's learning to be thankful to God in what she's cheerful for. And so what it does is it helps give her an awareness and a vocabulary. And so instead of just having gratitude for her circumstances, thanks for the ice cream, that's what her old prayers used to be like, instead she's able to voice gratitude for the grace of God in and through those circumstances. Thank you, God, for this kind gift of ice cream. Even though I do not deserve this gift of grace because I had a very bad attitude earlier. She doesn't say it exactly like that, but to that effect. So in praise, we learn to give our gratitude, not just for the circumstances, but to the God who is engineering and above and working through those circumstances, right? So a lot of times when we give thanks, we just say, thank you for this, thank you for that, instead of thanking the God, the, the one who provides the blessing. And in praise, as we are singing songs of praise, even words of praise, as we're praying in our minds and our hearts, we're also learning to thank the Lord for his goodness, even in the midst of our suffering. Because what I want you to see here is that first group, those, anyone suffering, and that second group, anyone cheerful, they are not necessarily mutually exclusive categories. You can be in a season of great suffering, and in the midst of that, still be cheerful, at least with the Lord. And so if you're cheerful this morning, we invite you to rejoice in song. And if you're not cheerful, start singing and see if you don't start rejoicing. Verse 14, how about, is anyone amongst you sick? He's talking about physical pain or or chronic conditions or maybe injury or disease. And what we know about the Bible is that we absolutely believe that there's a God in heaven who can and does heal people. Back then, during biblical times, and even today. And many of you have seen that happen. And when we are sick, James again puts the ball in our court. You be the one to call the elders. You go if you are sick and invite the elders of the church, the pastors, the spiritual leaders of the church to come to you and let them pray over you and perhaps anoint you with oil because back then that was a symbol of the presence and the power and the blessing of God. There's no magic in pouring oil on your head. I could pour oil on your head all day and all you would feel is sticky and, and kind of greasy. But it's a symbol, a reminder, a visible, tangible uh, uh, reminder of how God pours out his Holy Spirit and his blessing upon his people and how he heals us. And so we invite the leaders of the church to come and pray for us when we are struggling with sickness. And theologically, All of us sitting in this room probably understand that God is the one who decides who to heal according to his perfect wisdom and will. And yet, there's a tendency in us to be hesitant at times to pray for that. And the reason why is because probably many of you, probably everyone who has prayed for somebody who's sick at some point has experienced, I prayed for this person, they still, they got sicker. 
or I prayed for this person and they still died. And so sometimes we're very hesitant to pray for people. Even though we know that God can heal, we feel like, well, maybe it won't happen because for, uh, for me. And so the truth that I want you to see here, look at verse 15. The truth is, those who are followers of God, by faith, as we pray, we pray out of faith because God saves all his followers. He heals all of his followers. And we know that that's true because what he, he can heal some of us in this life, but he will heal all of us in the life to come when he raises up those who follow him into perfected, glorified bodies forever. And so the question isn't for believers, will God heal? It's when. Do you understand? Whether he heals temporarily now or eternally later, that's the question. And so we pray by faith for the will of God, the goodness of God to be manifest through healing. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, do I trust the Lord enough as a good father that I can ask him for good things? And do I trust him, his goodness and his will enough that even if he says no or if he says later, that that is his goodness and his sovereignty, that it is the right decision to make? Now, the second half of verse 15 adds a wrinkle to this whole sickness and healing thing. Now, I want you to hear me very clearly, okay? because we talked about this last week with Job's bad friends and their bad theology. Not all sickness is caused by sin, but there are times that it can be. You understand? And so, spiritually, spiritual sin can lead to physical ailments in our body, because our body and our mind and our spirit are all interconnected. We are one person. They're not, something happens in this one quadrant and then it doesn't affect things in another quadrant. We know even in science when, or, or in medicine, we see that somebody with severe emotional anxiety can uh, affect their body so that they have a physical ulcer, right? And so we know there's a connection, interconnection between mind, body, and spirit. And so in the same way, uh, with if you are spiritually, spiritually living in open sin and rebellion against God, then it can manifest through sickness in our physical bodies. And if we are indulging that kind of a lifestyle, you may end up saying to yourself, well, when I enjoy the, my sinfulness and my selfishness in the dark apart from God, I discover that no one is going to drag me up to get into this light where I belong, and so I saw this sign, and it opens up my eyes. I saw the sign that there are real consequences to my sin and that my body is what pays the price. So there are times, remember what I said, not all sickness is caused by sin. A lot of times, that's just because we live in a fallen, broken world, as we saw, or because of the attack of the evil one, like we saw with our brother Job. But there are times that before you deal with the symptoms of sickness, you need to deal with the source of sinfulness. Remember way back in James chapter 1, verse 15, Pastor James says that sin, when it's fully grown, leads to death. Not just spiritual, physical death as well. And so the t there are times when the problem is sin and the answer is repentance. So of course, we come to Jesus. That's exactly why he died on the cross. But at the beginning of verse 16, he also says, don't just not only confess your sins to Jesus, but also confess your sins to one another. Why? It's not because we need another mediator between us and God. Jesus is enough. But 
in order for us to practice life together as a family. What we do is we invite others into our sickness and our suffering and our struggles so that we're not alone. We're part of the family of Christ. And as we interact with others and share about our sinfulness or our sickness, it helps us sometimes to see our blind spots and maybe uh, where we are uh, trespassing against God. And then we pray for each other and we receive forgiveness and healing because our faith is personal but never private. We are part of a body of Christ, a community, a family that's meant to share in each other's struggles and sins and sufferings. And so, if you look across a church, some people are experiencing healing. Others are sick and dying. Some are experiencing a time of great celebration. Others, deep devastation. And what James says is that every experience is a cause for us to pray. So whether you are in difficulty or victory this morning, we all have a responsibility, a calling to turn to the Lord. And so I want to ask you, how much do you share with others in the body of Christ so that we can invite prayer as a family in Christ? People can only pray for you with how honest you are and authentic you are with one another. So, how do we get ourselves to pray more then? Look at the second half of verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Let's stop right there for a moment. Why don't we pray more? If God commands us to be praying for one another, why don't we pray more? Let me give you a few thoughts, a few reasons. There are times that we're simply too busy or too lazy. And the issue is a priority. Is God worthy? But then there are other times that the issue is identity. I'm not worthy. It doesn't matter if I pray. God won't answer because I'm not good enough. I'm not important enough for him to respond. And so in the second half of verse 16, Pastor James says, the prayers of a righteous person has great power. And then he goes on to give Elijah, not the one in the sound room, Elijah the prophet as an example. And of course, this only reinforces our reluctance because Elijah is like second in the Old Testament superhero rankings, like right behind Moses. He's the one who stood up against 850 false prophets at Mount Carmel. He's the one who called fire down from heaven. He was fed by birds. He spoke with angels. He's the one who never tasted death because God loves him so much he sent a chariot of fire from heaven to bring him directly home. That Elijah, well, of course his prayers are powerful and he gets answered because on Team Faith, he's the one with the cape and the big S on his chest, right? Now pay attention. Look at verse 17, beginning of verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. I don't know. I feel his resume is a little bit better than mine. Elijah is a sinner, saved by grace, loved by God. He has a nature like ours, and look at verse 16. He's righteous. I want you to catch that because this is the most important part of this passage. That means that he's sinful as us, And he's righteous. 
that he's righteous not by his ability and morality, but by his faith in a righteous and redeeming, forgiving and gracious God. And what Pastor James says is, you are like him. He is like you, sinful and saved. And because of that, God answers your prayers. So what does our faith and prayer, what should that look like? Look at verse 17, the second half. Elijah prays persistently, and God responds powerfully. So in order to bring the king and the queen and the people of Israel to repentance, Elijah asked God to hold back the rain as a symbol, as a sign of judgment to the people. And how does God respond? He does so. He does it. Not just for like a day, not just for a week, not for a month, not for a year. Three and a half years, God answers powerfully because Elijah prays persistently. And then in verse 18, he prays again that God would unleash and provide the rain and the fruit on the land. And at first, I want you to get this story because it's easy to skip through all this stuff. In the original story in 1 Kings chapter 18, it seems at first like God isn't responding to him. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah sends out his servant, his helper, to go look. And he sends him out seven times. The servant goes back and forth seven times looking for any signs of rain before he finally sees out on the horizon a teeny tiny little rain cloud. Okay, this seems kind of like piddly answers to my prayers. And so Elijah kept praying, kept praying, and that rain cloud approached and it grew bigger until it grew into this God-sized downpour on the land. In other words, Elijah had to pray patiently. And if you remember, for those of you who've been tracking along with us, just like that farmer way back in this chapter, but verse 7, that patient farmer who awaits and anticipates God's provision of rain and a season of fruitfulness. That's exactly what Elijah's calling for, rain and fruit on the land. And so the point here is that like Elijah, you and I, can pray powerfully and persistently because we trust a gracious God and his righteousness in us to respond. And like Elijah, there are times that we must wait. Not because you don't have enough faith, not because you don't have enough righteousness, but to trust in his righteousness in us, to grow in our faithfulness, to depend on him for the fruitfulness, then we experience confidence that he will provide the rain, the redemption, the relief, and the rescue in this life, or in the one to come. He is a gracious God who loves his people and wants to answer his righteous ones if we will persist in prayer. And so I want to ask you, are you persistent? Are you patient when you pray? Prayer is kind of like old school mining. What I mean by that is in order to create a mine shaft, you'd have to spend a long time boring deep holes into hard rock with great effort. And so it required patience, steadiness, skill. <coughs> Excuse me. And once you finished boring those holes out, then you would insert these explosives into it. And then to light the fuse and to uh, fire the shot, that's what it's called, these explosives, that's two things. It's easy and it's engaging, right? It's really exciting to see the results because these rocks explode everywhere. So it's pretty spectacular. But the more painstaking work takes both skill and the character of patience, because anyone can light a fuse. And so Pastor Tim Keller puts it this way. It's easy to do the fuse lighting, that kind of a prayer. And then we tend to drop those if there's no immediate results. But if we believe both 
in the power of prayer and the wisdom of God, then we need to develop patience, a patient life of whole boring. Because that's what makes our uh, prayers effective and powerful. This combination of, of tenacious persistence with God in prayer, with deep acceptance of God and his wise will, whatever that may be for that situation. And so I want to ask you, if you were to rate your prayer life on a scale of 1 to 10, where would you rate yourself? I know this is a very pastoral guilty question. And I suspect that none of us, including myself, would give ourselves a 10. And one of the reasons that we struggle to pray is you don't know that you are righteous. You're so aware of your sin, but unaware of your Savior. We're so aware of all the bad that we've done, we forget that Jesus is our righteousness and our mediator. That like Elijah, we are sinners, saved by grace, loved by God, clothed in the righteousness of the Son. And so as a son or daughter, we can ask our dad anything in his will, and he loves to give it to us. And when he doesn't, we still trust that he's a good father because he always answers prayers, whether he says yes or no or wait. We know that it's for our good and for his glory. So do you want to know what you really believe about yourself and about God? Then take a good look at how you pray. For some of us, if we're not talking to God or we only come to God with our sins and our complaints, which we should, but we never come to God about our righteousness and our new identity in Christ, about his love and his power for us, about his affection and devotion as a father to both hear and answer our prayers, then our theology is probably skewed. Elijah knew who he was. He's a sinner made righteous by God, heard by God, who asks big things of God, and he gets answers, not because Elijah is amazing, but because God is. And as you seek God's will, what issues do you need to be more persistent and patient in your prayers about? How do you need to be boring holes instead of just lighting fuses? What do you think James considers the most important thing to end this letter on? Let's look at the final section of scriptures this morning. Verse 19. My brothers, my brethren, brothers and sisters, if anyone amongst you in the church wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. As a pastor, James loves the church. He calls uh, to attention all kinds of people and situations in the church. Is anyone amongst you suffering or cheerful? Is anyone amongst you sinful? Sick or sinful. And what I want you to notice is that he addresses all these issues, but all of those, they're temporary states that pass at the end of this life, in this life or at the end of it. In verse 19, he concludes on an issue with eternal ramifications. Is anyone amongst you wandering from the truth? 
In other words, they've turned from Jesus, they've left the church, not because James is a bad pastor, not because his church is a bad church, but we all know that the troubles of life can take a toll on our faith and lures people who once knew Jesus and loved Jesus to turn away from him and leave his church. And so what does James suggest to, to us? If we are faithfully loving them and praying for them, as we reach out to them and we're challenging them, we're loving them with both truth and grace, and they come back, they come home to the Lord and His church. That has eternal significance. In verse 20, he says that you are literally involved in saving that person's soul from death and separation from God forever. We know that it is only Jesus that saves. It's only His Holy Spirit that does the regenerating work in the heart and and the conviction of sin to bring people to repentance. But... He calls his church, his people, to be vehicles to participate in that process. And so we see in verse 20 that we get to be involved in the saving of someone's soul from death and separation from God forever. Because the love and forgiveness of Christ covers over a multitude, all of their sins when they turn back to him. And if we're going to do that, if we're going to do so, then the church needs to learn how to love people and to see people the way that God does. And so I think back to October 2015. My family and Christina Almendrala and uh, Lori uh, Campbell, uh, we completed a 10-day uh, short-term mission in Vietnam. Uh, that It was in October. Weird time to go, but good for us. And I want to tell you that it was an incredibly Holy Spirit-filled, Holy Spirit-led trip. And so... It was wonderful, but we were exhausted at the end of the trip. And so I kind of breathed a sigh of relief as we returned to the airport to to fly back home. And as we checked in at the airport and we were getting ready to board, we were alarmed to discover my two-year-old son at the time, Indy, had disappeared. He was gone. And so we frantically searched throughout the airport, but it's, as you know, it was a large international airport And so it's too busy, it's too crowded to find a tiny little two-year-old. We didn't know the language, we didn't know how to ask for help or where to get help. We couldn't find him anywhere. And I have to tell you, that was probably one of the worst moments of my life. I was terrified. Now the resolution is, praise the Lord, the Holy Spirit, so present and so wonderful, he prompted uh, Melissa's heart and reminded her that our son Indy at the time, at two years old, he loves escalators. I don't know. And so... Uh, it seemed like kind of a long shot, but it really felt like the Holy Spirit was prompting and convicting Melissa. So we went and went to go look for the, the closest escalator. And sure enough, there he was. We found this little two-year-old guy standing at the bottom of the escalator, just watching go up. People go up and people come down. And he, he actually was literally following the rule that Mama had given him. Melissa told him, uh, you may not go on an escalator by yourself. So he was just standing there watching. People go up, people go down. And it was A wonderful moment, a beautiful reunion. And after um, uh, all these hugs and tears of relief, I want to tell you that my son, two years old, received the mother of all timeouts, that we took him and put him up against the wall. He had to put his hands against the wall with his legs splayed like he was under arrest for five minutes while we lectured him and explained to him why he was wrong. But what I will never forget was that feeling that heartbreaking panic and despair because my son, whom I love, has wandered off. He's lost to me. Do you know 
that that is how God feels about everyone who wanders away. And in the same way, he wants us to feel that, to care, to be devastated for a brother or sister who wanders from the truth. James says, pursue and pray for those who wander from Jesus. That's what's most on his heart as this beautiful pastor wraps up this beautiful letter of love and life and faith and concern for the church family. And so I want you to think about it this way. There's three types of wandering that happens in the church. There's theological wandering. Well, I'm not sure that all the Bible is true. I'm not sure that Jesus is fully God and fully man. I'm not sure that Jesus died on a cross for my sins and rose from the dead to be my Savior. I don't know if I'm really a sinner or that I really need Jesus. And so people start to wander into vague spirituality and false teaching. Now, what I want you to hear, hear me very carefully. We're not talking about secondary theological issues that we can have disagreements and even debates about. We're talking about primary issues of faith, of what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, wandering theologically, and end up leaving Jesus and his church. Secondly, people also wander morally. It's not that they have bad theology, but the Bible says no to sinfulness and selfishness, but I say yes because it feels good and I want to enjoy it and I want to try it. And so this is the person who says, I know what the Bible says, I just don't like it. And so I'm going to do things my way, apart from Jesus. Thirdly, there are people who wander relationally. It's not that they have bad theology, they don't understand the Bible, it's not that they just want to sin, but perhaps they were part of the community of Christ, and then they just wandered away. It could be because they had a conflict with somebody, or difference of, of personality with other people in their small group, or they just don't like the church, or they just lost interest. But they were part of the community of Christ, and they just stopped coming. They stopped coming to church, to worship, to small group. They stopped returning your calls and texts, and they cut off relationships with all of God's people. And the heart behind it is, well, I don't want to be under any authority. I don't want to be in any community. And the result is vulnerability. What I mean by that is the Bible says Jesus is a good shepherd and that people are sheep. And if we wander away from his love and his comfort, his provision and his protection, then on our own, we're going to be attacked and slaughtered by wolves. We're vulnerable. Now, what we're not talking about here is someone who goes from one Jesus-loving, Bible-believing church to another Jesus-loving, Bible-believing church. That's not wandering because we're all one big church and we, we may disagree on the finer points for now, but ultimately we'll be together forever. This is the person who says, I don't know where I'm going, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm willing to take that risk just to see what happens apart from Jesus and apart from his church. So the question is, how should we respond? James talks a lot about prayer in this passage. So perhaps we, should be, we need to be praying for them. But he's also basically saying, if you know them, they used to be part of your church family, if you know them, go get them. It'd be weird, right, if a parent lost a kid at an airport or a kid lost a sibling and then just kind of shrugged, oh, well, I still have other ones at home. And yet that is often how we treat our friends and family who wander away from the truth. So two questions for you this morning. Have you wandered? 
If so, wandering theologically, morally, relationally, I need you to know there is a Father in heaven who cares, who is concerned. And he provides an imperfect family, but with a perfect older brother in Jesus who's teaching that family to be caring and concerned for you. You should consider coming home because there's a God and his family who love you. Second question, who do you know that's wandering? And what will it look like for you to try and go get them? I'm praying for you. Please come back to Jesus. Please come back to his family. I love you, and I'm praying for you. How can I support you? How can I encourage you? Is your life and your faith vibrant as part of a church, as part of a community of faith? Or do you find your relationship with Jesus and his family discouraged and flat and gray in the midst of the challenges of today? The opposite, colorful and vibrant. James closes this letter, his only letter that he wrote for the canon of Scripture, encouraging us to share in each other's lives deeply by praying for each other regularly on all occasions. And so this morning, we want to give you a moment to do that. Let's not just talk about prayer. Let's do it. And so I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and they're going to play some instrumental music quietly. And you and I, we're going to take a quiet moment to pray right now. And so let's all bow our heads. And what we're going to do is I'm going to ask you to pray for your suffering. Just like James tells, tells us that we don't play the victim card and say, why aren't people praying for us? Why isn't anybody helping us? He says, if, you're, if you are suffering, pray. And so pray for your suffering this morning. And then secondly, pray for those you know and love who may be sick or wandering. And then I'll pray. And then I invite you to rejoice in singing. And even if you're not cheerful this morning, start singing and see if you don't start rejoicing. Let's take a quiet moment. Would you pray for yourself? Pray for those you know and love who may be sick or wandering.
Heavenly Father, we give praise to you, a great and mighty God. Even as your people continue to silently pray, we want to collectively pray together as a church. And so we come before you, metaphorically singing songs of praise, declaring your greatness, your goodness, that you are the only one who is perfectly holy and perfectly merciful, that you are just and merciful in perfection completely. Somehow, your mercy fulfills your justice at the cross. And so we praise you. And to think that out of your love and compassion, that you give your perfection, your righteousness to us through Jesus. And so though we don't always feel like it, we stand before you in righteousness, not because we're so good, but because you are. And because of that, we can come before you and trust that you hear us, that you care about us, that you answer us. And so we bring before you many secret sufferings, secret sins, maybe even hidden sickness. We ask this morning you would give us courage to share them in the family of Christ with at least one other person but that we might participate in the body of Christ, the joy of Christ, and that as we commune together and uh, reveal ourselves to one another and pray for each other, that we receive forgiveness and healing and freedom. And so we surrender our suffering to you, O God. We mourn it because it's not a magic formula. We don't pretend like it doesn't hurt. We don't pretend that it just goes away. We grieve our pain, but we celebrate our God. We ask for your help and your hope that you would alleviate our suffering, that you would hear our cries, that you would take away sickness, that you would take away sinfulness. We pray for our brothers and sisters who, especially over this past year, it's been hard to stay connected to your church. And sometimes we know when we're cut off from the body, a cell or an organ that's cut off from a physical body simply withers and dies. And that's how many of us may have felt we've wandered away from you, we've wandered away from your church. God, have mercy. Bring them home. And so God, as we continue bowing our hearts and our heads and our knees before you, we bring our suffering and our sickness and our sinfulness and yet, even in the midst of that, we rejoice. We rejoice that we have a good God. We rejoice we have a Savior who loves us and redeems us, who can heal us now and will heal us forever. And so we lament and mourn, and we also celebrate and sing in the beautiful name of Jesus.